You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Well, here's what we're going to do. First of all, we're going to look at the instigator, and then we're going to look at the strategy. Chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, point number one is this. There's an instigator in every conflict. I don't know what it's like in your house, but there's always an instigator, right? Whenever there's conflict, there's someone who's kind of sparking the conflict. And in our house where we have four children, four girls, four girls, right? I'm not being sexist. I think there's a thing in that. There's four, five women, four little girls, nine and down in our house, and they don't fight with their fists. Amen. <laughs> they fight with their words. And here's the funny thing. I found this. I think our girls have kind of um, adopted this creed. It's called the toddler's creed. And here it goes. And let me know if you can identify with this. Here's their creed. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all of the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it is mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. Our house oftentimes is full of conflict, and I don't think it's any different in any family, and especially in the world. Our world is full of conflict. How did it get going? Let's get the setting. Let's get the setting first before we take a look at the instigator. If you back up to chapter 1, verse 26, we find that after God had made the heavens and the earth, the vegetation and the animals, in chapter 1, verse 26, he creates his crowning achievement, Adam and Eve, He says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and all the earth, and over every uh, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created mankind, men and women, in his image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. So watch this, okay? God doesn't create us because he needs us. God creates us because he's by nature a benevolent God that loves to share. That's why his triunity is so important is that he shares within the context of one God, three persons who are in perfect fellowship, glorifying, sharing their glory with one another. And so check this out. God creates Adam and Eve in his image. He doesn't make Sparky in his image. He doesn't make Fluffy in his image. He doesn't make a tree in his image. He makes you and he makes me in his image and invites us into this perfect fellowship that has existed for all of eternity past. Because God is a benevolent, loving God that loves to share, that is by nature gracious and loves inviting us into his glory. Isn't that amazing of our God? Fluffy doesn't get to do that, sorry. Sparky doesn't get to either, but you and I do. That's a pretty amazing thing. And so he takes these two, he sets them in the garden, but he does it with some parameters. In chapter 2, verse 9, we find that um, there are two trees in the garden. 
In chapter two, verse nine, he gives the tree of life and out of the ground, verse nine, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for the food. And the tree of life, which is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And so he sets up these two trees and he creates some boundaries for Adam and Eve. Chapter two, verse 16 It says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden. And notice that, you may surely eat of what? Every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you will probably die. You shall eventually, most likely surely die. Now, why does God do this? Why does, why does God put Adam and Eve into the garden, give them this amazing gift and invite them into relationship with him, but then put these trees here, one that offers life and one that offers death? You ever wondered like, why doesn't God just put them in the garden and no restrictions and no commands of any kind because then there's no conflict and why? Why? Because he's defining the relationship. Right? Boundaries define relationship. When you get into a relationship with someone, you're in a dating relationship. If you have no boundaries in your relationship, you really have no relationship. When you get into a marriage, you need boundaries on your marriage because if you don't, that relationship falls apart and it crumbles. And so what God is doing right here is he's creating boundaries and structures so that we know who we are in relationship to him. And here's what God is trying to tell Adam and Eve. Look, you're not the masters, you're the tenants. You're not the owners, you're the stewards. You're not the creator, you're the creation. And as long as we remember that, we good. Life's gonna be great. Frolic around naked in the garden. All you like will be fine as long as you remember who's God, who is not. And the way you do that is by honoring this one simple command. Does that sound pretty easy to you? Like, could you handle one command? All right, anybody else with me? Like, I can handle one rule. I I can't, I I struggle with 10. 10, like that's my max. One, I can do one. And so you would think, okay, this this is perfect. Like, this, this this is awesome. Like, this is the perfect setup. Like, you put us in the garden. Everything is awesome. The food is amazing. There's only one rule that I got to obey. Here's the, why is this important as we start talking about conflict? And don't miss this. Your vertical relationship with God governs your horizontal relationships with other people. Do you understand that? Your horizontal or your vertical relationship with God dictates, governs, controls, informs, impacts every relationship that you have here on the face of the planet. And you know who else knows that besides you? Satan. He knows if I can mess up, if I can disconnect, if I can frustrate, if I can get in the way of our vertical relationship with the God who made us in his image and likeness to invite us into his glory and to have a relationship with him. If I can break that, if I can sever that, if I can mess that up, then I can destroy all of this. So we have the setting. Now we have the serpent. Chapter three, verse one. 
we see the instigator who sparks the conflict. Notice what it says in verse 1. Now uh, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field the Lord God had made. Now we don't, I think, have to do a whole lot of theological digging to figure out that this is Satan. Is is everybody agreed on this? Uh, We see in the New Testament that Satan and demons are able to um, indwell animals and take control of them and do things through them. But we find here something fascinating is that we have a serpent that's a chatty Cathy. He really likes to talk. And let me ask you this. When, When you hear the term Satan, what comes to mind? What just popped into your head? Say it to me. What, what popped into your And we're going to do it on the count of three. Everybody, class participation, all right? So just imagine, like, there's only 10 of us in here, and some of you are like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. Just imagine you're in a class of, like, eight other people, and on the count of three, we're all going to say what popped into our heads. On the count of three, one, two, three. Okay, like 20 of you did that. That's all right. We're going to try one more time. One, two, three. Okay, I got a lot of things there. I'm going to try to discern that. Um, I, horns and a pitchfork? Anybody? Right? I, I, like a, a little, I always, what immediately came to my mind when I thought of Satan was a little kid in, in a red outfit with a tail and a pitchfork in his hands. And I don't know why that popped into my mind, but I got four kids, so. <laughs> you know what's fascinating about the text, though, is how he doesn't appear. Watch this. Now the angel was more crafty. He doesn't appear as an angel. Satan is an angel, right? And he was the most beautiful, Ezekiel chapter 28. He was the most beautiful created being ever. And yet that's not how he comes to them. Notice also he, in the text, he doesn't, now the, the monster was more crafty. He doesn't come to them as this big, stomping, uh, honking, heft, I don't know, intimidating thing, right, that instills fear. And he doesn't come at them as something beautiful that they might worship him. How does he come to them? He comes to them as a snake. Have you ever wondered why a snake? I mean, Just forget that we've heard this story a million times, church people, and ask yourselves, why on earth does he come as a snake? Let's track that down for a second. Will you go with me on this one? Verse 1, look again at what it says. Now, the serpent was more, what does it say? It was more crafty, or in the King James, it was more subtle, right? That's what snakes are. They're crafty. They're subtle. If you think about it, a snake, they tend to lie low, they hide, they tend to disguise themselves as something else. They're easy to um, miss and not see, and yet there's so many of them there. I mean, I remember when we moved into our house uh, about five years ago, um, if you don't know our backyard or if you've never seen it, it's kind of like the forest. We got 14 trees and I've already cut down three of them. We've got 14 trees in our backyard and a lot of shrubbery, okay? And I remember I had this big pile of, uh, of bricks, and I was trying to move them from one place to another. I don't remember why. And I picked up a brick, and there was a snake right in front of me. Just, hi. 
And I freaked out, and I dropped it, and it smacked it, and it killed it. And I was like, okay, the only good snake is a dead snake. That's awesome. Um, but then later in the year, I was, I was picking up a pile of sticks, and, and right in the middle of a pile of sticks, my hand was right next to this snake that looked just like a stick. And here's the thing about snakes. Like, they're out there. They're everywhere. We just don't see them. We don't realize them, and we often misinterpret them as something that they aren't. Are you with me? And so it's interesting that right here in the text, he doesn't come as an angel. He doesn't come as a monster. He doesn't come as something beautiful. He comes as something that is very easy to underestimate. You look at a snake, it's on the ground. What can a snake do to me? But man, if it gets a bite on you, it can kill you. And what is fascinating about this, especially as we think about Satan as a serpent, is that In the Old Testament, this is the first time we hear about Satan, and we're not going to hear about him again for another 350 plus chapters. We won't hear about him again until 1 Chronicles chapter 21, where David is incited by Satan to take a census. And we only hear about him how many times, teens, in the Old Testament? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Take a guess. It's on one hand. How many fingers? Four. Isn't that shocking? Like we only hear about him four times in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. He's easy to miss. He's, he hides easily behind the scenes, but he exerts a disproportionate level of influence and power over our lives and in our relationships. Are you with me? That's why he's crafty. That's why he's subtle is because he's good at hiding. He's good at pretending. He's good at being misunderstood and underestimated. And yet behind the scenes, he is working craftily and subtly to destroy and to twist and to dominate relationships and destroy them all. I heard a story of a lady who is um, working on her farm, gathering firewood, and uh, she went to break off a tree branch. And uh, it was brown and long, and she didn't realize it was a snake. And it had kind of rigidly rigidly strengthened its body. It, It looked like a twig. It looked like a branch. And she went to break it, and it bit her, and it killed her because she did not know what she was looking at. Why is this important? Because here's what we have to understand. You've got to know the who behind the what is about to happen. See, the thing that we all have right now is we understand where this story is going, amen? Like, we understand what's about to happen. Like, there's going to be a conflict with God, and then Adam and Eve, they're going to, um, this is going to be the first cops episode in the Old Testament where the cops are going to be called, and someone's going to show up for a domestic uh, disturbance thing, and, and we know what's coming. But if we don't pause and we don't recognize the who behind the what of relational conflict, then we're never going to find the proper solutions. Conflict never happens in a vacuum. Behind every conflict in your life, there is an enemy that you can't see. Behind every conflict in your life that you see, there is an enemy that you cannot And so the next time you enter into conflict in your life horizontally with somebody else, whether it's your neighbor or your boss or your coworker or your spouse or your child or your friend, you must remember the who behind 
the what? Am I preaching to myself? Every time we hold on to an offense, every time we yell in anger or bark, every time we hold on to resentment and bitterness, Anytime you look in the mirror and you start rehearsing, this is what I wish I had said to so-and-so at that moment. Anybody else? You've got to remember the who behind the what. You've got to remember that there's an enemy behind all human conflict working very hard to destroy our relationships. And you have to remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Behind every conflict, physical, is a spiritual battle being fought for the soul of your soul and the soul of your relationships. And I was reminded of this this morning as I struggled with my own passions and my own truth telling and my own, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a passionate person, can you tell? I'm a truth teller. I don't mind confrontation. My voice goes up easily. And in that, it's easy for me to lose sight of how I'm affecting the people that I love most in my life. And in seasons where there's much conflict horizontally in our lives, we have to start asking a very serious question. Is there conflict vertically with our God? Are you with me? Okay. So let's look at the enemy's strategy. How does he go about doing this? Because this, I think, is going to be stuff that we've been seeing since the beginning of time that we're all very familiar with. Our enemy has a lot of tactics up his sleeves. And um, I want you to notice the first thing that he does, though, here. And, and this is why this is so important. I want you to notice what he does. In chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said, to who? What does he say? Did did Adam actually say this to you? This, This is why we do expository preaching, because we want to let the word of God be the authority here. Now, what does it say in the text? He says to the woman, did Adam actually say to you? What, church? What does it say? Did, what is Satan doing here? He's not going after Adam and Eve initially. He's not going to, 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 what am I trying to say here? To break them apart initially. What is he trying to do? He's going after Adam and Eve to break their what relationship? Their relationship with God. Because he knows, I don't need to separate Adam and Eve. I don't need to get between the one flesh union. All I need to do is get between them and God and everything else will take care of itself. Right now, I don't know what kind of conflict you're embroiled in. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know who you're fighting with. I don't know who you are. You're supposed to be like this and you feel a million miles apart. But the reality is every time we have horizontal human conflict in our lives, it is birthed out of conflict with our God. Always. Always. Now, there are rare instances where in relationship with our God, we have to have conflict with other people, and we agree with that. Amen? Okay. But normally, amen, that's not the reason. 
And so as we continue here, this sneaky snake knows that if you can disconnect Adam and Eve from a vertical relationship with God, the horizontal will suffer. So how does he do that? Number one, he confuses her. Number one, he confuses her. He says to her in, in verse one, the latter half, new paragraph here, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Are you sure that's what God said? Are you certain that that's what God meant? Now let's back up here for a second. Did God give them a crystal clear command in chapter 2, verse 17? Let's look back at it. Chapter 2, verse 17. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day of it you will probably die. What does he say? You're going to, dude, bro, you're going to drop dead. You're going to die. Life will exit your body and you will be no more, right? Surely you will die. Now, here's the thing. Is it going to happen right away? No, but will it happen? 100% yes. And not only that, it's not just one death. Watch this, guys. It's two. There's a physical death, but there was also what? A spiritual. Every point is pointed on a man wants to die, and then comes the judgment. If we stand apart from Christ in that judgment, we will die again forever. This is heaven and hell stuff. And so he gives, God gives Adam and Eve a crystal clear command. But what Satan does here is he said, are you sure that that's what he said? Are you, are you sure that that's what he meant? I mean, I mean um, theology by survey here, do you think that all of this could have been pretty easily cleared up with a phone call to God? Wait a minute, let me go and, and check with the boss. Hey, hey God, I just want to make sure we got this right. We will probably die no, surely, okay, okay, all right, yeah, sorry, serpent, uh, I, we can't eat. Don't, don't you think a phone call would have cleared that up? But no, of course, Satan doesn't want that to happen. He wants to confuse because the weapon of the enemy is confusion in the context of relationships. The way in which Satan gets into relationships and breaks things down is through this thing called confusion. Confusion in our understanding of who God is, confusion in our understanding of who we are, confusion in our understanding of who other people are made in the image of God. And Satan wants to get into the mix of that and confuse things so that he can break relationships apart. I remember when I was a little kid and um, I went down to Crest Haven Crest Haven was just like a block and a half away from my school or, or, or away from our house. And so I would go down there to, to play basketball all the time and play with my friends. And so I went down with Nick Tan and we were hanging out. We were playing football and I saw some friends playing on the playground and they were playing basketball. And I don't know what they said. They yelled out something to me and, and I thought they said one thing. And based off what I thought they said, I replied inappropriately Let's just leave it at that. And they stopped playing basketball dead in their tracks and were shocked. And Nick Tan looked at me and he was shocked. He was like, why did you say that? And I'm like, well, they said this, blah, blah, blah. Why well, go off? Nick Tan and I, Nick Tan goes home. I'm heading on my way home and these guys come out from behind the trees and they beat the snot out of me. First time I ever got beat up. I deserved it because you know what they really asked me? Do you want to play basketball? I found that out later at school. But because I was confused as to what they were actually asking me, that's how I responded. And 
Do you, do you see how confusion works? Maybe God didn't mean that. Maybe this won't really happen to me. I mean, I know that these are the promises of God. I know that my sin eventually will find me out, but maybe it won't find me out. Maybe these consequences don't really apply to me. They apply to everybody else. And we start to doubt, we start to question, and in the fog and in the confusion, question and doubt, and the clarity of God's word in our relationships of who we are, who God is, and who other people are, cause relational dysfunction. Do you see it in your life? I see it in mine. And here's the second tactic, the second strategy, is caricature. Verse one, did God actually say to you, This one's easy to miss, and um, we fall for it all the time, but look in the text. It says, did God actually say to you that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, hard stop, question mark? Now think back to what God said. He said, you can eat of every tree, right, except one. But what Satan does is he stops it at the comma, and he puts a question mark, And do you see the change? Because now what he's done with God is he's taken God, who is a benevolent, awesome creator God, who's willing to share everything that he has and give him this amazing gift of the garden. But he's got this one comma, this one comma at the end of the sentence. He says, yeah, but just make sure you obey me right here. To remind them, I'm master, you're not. I'm creator, you're not. I'm in charge, you're not. To remind what our relationship is with God and what does Satan do here? He takes out the comma, he puts a question mark and in so doing, he changes God from benevolent giver to self-serving, withholding, spoil sport. Did God say you can't eat Look back at it. You shall not eat of any tree. Wow. Ugh. Yikes. God must run a pretty tight ship over there. Kind of sounds like the old battle axe. It's kind of a hard nose, isn't it? He, he kind of likes to have, he doesn't want you to have any fun. Well, look at all these amazing trees that he's made for you. And he doesn't want you to eat any of them. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking a small restriction for their good. He's turning a mountain out of a molehill, and he's painting God as a self-serving, withholding spoil sport, and he's creating a caricature of God that's not only not true, but very destructive. But we do this to each other all the time, don't we? Do you ever caricature, caricature anybody else in your life? Typecast people, label prejudice, without knowing? Do we do this to people all the time? Like this is the lifeblood of the internet, is it not? Oh, you're a Democrat. I know who you are. Oh, you're a Republican. I know who you are. Oh, you voted for Trump. I really know who you are. 
Oh, you're, you're, you're for gun restriction. I know who you are. Oh, you kneel during the national anthem. I know who you are. We like to reduce people down to caricatures, don't we? Rather than spending time with people who disagree with us or don't see life the same way that we do, we want to caricature people and categorize them because it's more convenient and more easy and more comfortable for us rather than to sit down at a table and get to know somebody and ask hard questions. Is anybody with me? But this is what's been happening since the garden, is we characterize people and we caricature this and we put them in a box and we label them rather than spending time with them and getting to know them. And if they had known their God or if they'd been willing to pick up the phone or if they'd been willing to sit down at the table and actually get to know who their God was, they would be reminded that their God is gracious and kind and giving and benevolent rather than spoil sport dictator. But this is how relationships fall apart all the time. Now, let me say this. In the context of all the things that I just said, there's a lot of disagreement in our church over all of those. Because I see some of your Facebook posts, and I know how passionate some of us are about them. And that's exactly why I'm bringing it up. Because we caricature one another, just like we did in the garden. Number three, conscience. Here's how it continues. Verses two and three. Now, we've got to give Eve a lot of credit here. Got to give her a lot of credit because she really does try hard to course correct the conversation here because she can tell the conversation is going off the rails. In verse one, it says, did God actually say you should not eat of the tree of the garden? Of the, uh, of the garden? And, and she says in verse 22, and the woman said to the serpent, you, you, we may eat of the fruits, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, right? So she's trying to course correct here, and neither shall we touch it lest we die. Now, we don't know if she exaggerated that in her mind or she misunderstood or misinterpreted or she added something or if God said it and it just not included. We don't really know why that was added, but we know that she's trying to course correct. But look at what the serpent does here in verse four. What is his retort? Back up to verse 3 at the very end. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. That part is absolutely correct. She's got it locked in her mind. And what does the serpent say? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Wow. I mean, come on. Do you really think God's going to kill you if you reach out and grab a piece of fruit and eat it? Come on. Look at all that God's given you. I mean, he's this good to you. Why would he just, done? Why? Oh, come on. You can't can't possibly think that he's really going to do that, right? Do you see what Satan's doing? Go ahead. He'll forgive you. Hmm. Just this once. One won't hurt you. You ever thought those thoughts in your head? We all have. Satan's a liar. In John 8, 44, when Jesus calls him out for what he is, he's a liar. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter calls him out for what he is, that he's a lion. 
And his, his lies are not just to frustrate you, but to destroy you. In Ephesians chapter 6, we find out that Satan's a warrior who shoots the flaming darts, right, over our defenses into our minds to twist our minds, to get us to think wrong about who we are, about who God is, about who we are as a people, to, to, to distort, to set our minds on fire with false thinking, to lure us into the trap of destruction. Relationships all the time are destroyed when we justify sin in our minds. It's not gossip. It's, it's not gossip. I'm just sharing a prayer request. It's not slander against my wife. It's not slander against my husband. I'm just venting, getting it off of my chest with seven other people in the room. I'm not bottling up anger. I just don't want to talk to my husband anymore because if I do, I'm going to let him have it. I'm not bitter. I just got a great memory. I'm not complaining. I'm just realistic. You ever been there? Like, that's me. That's totally me. I, 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 can I just be honest for a second because we're at church and I can't lie? And transparency is, is uh, the currency of relationships. I struggle with that. I want something. I don't get it. I want to go to somebody and complain. And my heart is discontent. And I say I'm being a realist. I'm not looking at porn just doing research. I'm not being passive in my relationship with my spouse. I just want them to be happy. He shoots them over our defenses. He gets these thoughts into our head, these lies that twist things up and turn things around and distort our thinking so that we can't see clearly and all of a sudden, we're fighting, we're arguing, we're battling, we're yelling, we're cussing, and we don't even know how we got there. And then finally, he contorts. In verse 5, now Satan takes the truth and he contorts it. In verse 4, he says, uh, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So he tells, him an, tells her an outright lie, right? Just tells her an outright lie to soothe her conscience, to make her feel better about sinning, to make her feel better about compromise. And so verse 5, he goes in to, to sink the final nail in the coffin. Verse 5, he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Like a carnival mirror, Satan takes the truth that has been delivered to Adam and Eve and he contorts it and he twists it to use it for his own purposes to destroy relationships. 
See, here's the thing. Satan says to them, God knows if you eat this fruit, you're going to be just like him. Did you catch the twist? They already are like him. Did you catch that? It's so subtle and it's so crafty. We already are like him. Back up to chapter one, verse 26. Look at it again, verse 27. So God created them in his own image. Fluffy is not made in the image of God. Your pet is not made in the image of God. Your tree is not made in the image of God. You are. You are made in the image of God. And yet Satan here, he takes the truth, he twists it, he says to Adam and Eve, well, you're not really like God because you don't know good from evil. And so here's, here's the deal. If you, eat the, if you eat the tree, you'll be totally like God. And then you won't need him. You'll be able to distinguish good from evil all on your own. He contort, he contorts, he takes a promise of protection, turns it into a prohibition. He takes the promise of death and he turns it into a promise of liberation. So Adam and Eve, you know the story. Chapter three, verse six, look at it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Do you see all the three sins that John mentions in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15? We're gonna talk about that next week. Uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, it's all right there. Um, she took of its fruit and she ate. Now where's, where's Adam in the whole equation? Where's Adam? Where's Adam? Is, is, he, is he being the truth-telling, confrontational, protective, on-guard, sober-minded, vigilant guy that God crafted him and created him to be? Is he caring for his wife? Is he protecting his, his, his wife? Is he looking over his wife? Wait, he's probably out hunting, right? Gathering food. Well, you know we don't hunt at this point in history, right? So there's no hunting. They just eat fruit. They're all vegetarians, right? So let's all go out and be vegetarian. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife ran to God. They hid. Hid themselves from the God who created them in his image, in his likeness, who invited them into fellowship, into relationship, to share in his glory, in his joy, in his peace. And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, that's Satan's strategy. He wants to confuse us confuse our understanding of who he is, confuse our understanding of who we are, confuse our understanding of the nature of our relationships with each other. 
His first goal is to confuse. His second goal is to caricature, to get you to see God in an almost accurate way, but a little bit off. Because he knows if he can get you to have a caricature of God in your mind, you begin to see God in a bad way, and you won't want a relationship with God. And then he starts to soothe the conscience, and he seeds the idea that rebelling against God is actually a good idea, or at, at least ignoring God is the best way to go in life. And can I suggest right now that the average American in America, that's what we do. We come to church, we soothe our conscience, we make ourselves feel great about hearing the word of God and we find the best preacher that we can and we flood that church and we go to church and we check the box that we go home and we ignore God the rest of the week. We compartmentalize God and we, we stick him into the church box, into the religion box, and we say, God, you stay right there because that's where I'm comfortable having you. But don't you dare follow me into work. Don't you dare follow me into my marriage. Don't you dare impact my relationship with my kids. And don't you dare impact the way I talk to other people because I got that. And he soothes our conscience because we went to church on Sunday. We pat ourselves on the back and we say, good job. We're being good Christians. And then he contorts. He says, look, the consequences aren't going to be near as bad as we thought. God's way more loving than we give him credit for. He wouldn't treat you like that. He's not a God of wrath. He's not a God of judgment. God doesn't ever get angry. The foundation of every horizontal conflict in our lives is a vertical conflict with God. We're confused. We characterize him. Our conscience is salved. We contort the consequences. This gets disconnected. This starts to fall apart. So what we're going to do next week is we're going to look at the first cops episode. Adam and Eve start fighting in the garden. Police officer shows up and has to break up the fight. I speak in jest, but here's the point. Before we can start talking about these relationships here, we have to talk about this relationship here. Because if we just start giving ideas about, here's how to fix your relationship, here's how to make your marriage better, here's how to parent your kid better, here's how to have a better relationship with your boss, here's how to climb the corporate ladder, here's how to be blah, 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 and this doesn't get fixed, we got a problem. So here's what we're going to do. Next week, we're going to spend time looking at Adam and Eve. But here's the part that I don't want you to miss because I'm going to leave you with this. If this morning you're saying to yourself or you're thinking to yourself, wow, like I, I, this is completely disconnected in my life. My passion, my joy, my, my connection, my, my focus on the Lord is completely and totally gone and I'm feeling it in my horizontal relationships right now. Where is the hope? Where is the help? Chapter three, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first promise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in all of Scripture. 
And we get a very clear picture of what exactly he's going to do in in verse 21. Check this out. Don't miss this. If you're visiting today, don't miss this. You might say, I'm not sure I can trust the word. I'm not sure I can trust the Bible. How do you account for this verse being in here thousands of years before Jesus came, predicting exactly what Jesus is going to do? Check this out. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife a garment of skin to clothe their sin. I'm inserting sin. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to come. There's an innocent animal out there in the garden that God takes. There had never been death up to this point. He slaughters that animal, rips it hide off of it, and places it on Adam and Eve to cover their sin, to cover their shame. And that is exactly what Jesus was going to do when he was crucified on that cross, that God ripped off of his son's back his righteousness so that it could be applied to you and to cover your sin and cover your shame by faith so that you could be right with God. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do thousands of years later and is predicted right here in the very first chapters of the Bible. Our God is amazing. And our God is passionate about reconciling broken relationships in this life. Not just these, but yes, these. But most of all, this. I say, wow, you're getting really hyped up about this. Yes, because in my life, I've felt the pain and the frustration of broken relationships for me, and I've seen, watched God mend them with the gospel. So if you're entering in, maybe you're entering in, I'm like, I'm good, I don't, I don't need this, I don't have any conflict, Whew. watch out. It's not a matter of if, but when. But here's the thing, there's hope. There's hope, and there's help. Father, we love you. So Father, I pray, God, that you would stir in our hearts right now just a passion to understand that in the context of horizontal conflict and brokenness, Lord, it all begins with a break in our relationship with you. And we understand that Jesus is the only way to cure that, to mend that, to restore that, to redeem that relationship that we have with you. So Father, I pray, God, as we continue through this brief series, that our conflict would actually be a road sign pointing to our hope in Christ. And I pray for those who come over the Christmas season and they feel the conflict, but they don't have the hope that we would rescue them in Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.